Thanks for downloading the latest update from the Skift Airline Weekly Lounge. Over the last few weeks, we've been bringing you exclusive conversations with some of the leading airline executives around the world. After conversations with CEOs at British Airways and AirAsia, today we're talking to United Airlines President Scott Kirby. Kirby answers questions about the airline's Asia strategy from Skift Editor-in-Chief Tom Lowry. Whether you're listening to these conversations from your office or your summer vacation, we hope you're enjoying the insight from some of the industry's top minds. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome President United Airlines, Scott Kirby, in discussion with Skift Editor-in-Chief Tom Lowry. Good morning. So as you heard, I'm Tom Lowry. I'm the editor-in-chief of Skift. Uh, I joined Skift more than a year ago to run the editorial operations. And uh, this is a real privilege for me for my first uh, onstage interview for Skift to be able to talk <laughs> to one of the most closely watched executives in the airline industry, Scott Kirby at, at United. So thank, thank you, Scott, for thank being you, with Tom. us. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. And as Rafit mentioned, thank you for giving up your Memorial Day. <laughs> I guess the only upside is that the markets are closed in the U.S., so anything you say today won't move the show. <laughs> That's true. We've had a so, good time in Singapore. Wow. Good, good. Uh, so we are in Singapore, and it's uh, the hub of what you could argue is one of the most dynamic regions for travel in the world. Uh, what are the strategic opportunities in this region in Asia for United? So United is already the largest U.S. carrier to Asia. Uh, we serve 31 destinations here in Asia, over 300 weekly flights. Uh, we've been growing. Uh, we've got applications in with uh, both uh, with the U.S. government and uh, for new service to Japan, new service to China. Uh, so, you know, obviously everyone knows that the Asian economies are growing strongly. Uh, a lot higher propensity to travel as more and more people move up an economic class, uh, a lot more disposable income, and so we view it as an opportunity. We also have the best hubs on the West Coast, uh, in particular, to serve Asia, so real opportunity for so United. You, you've tried some things here before. Uh, for example, you had a LA to Singapore direct route. Prior to you coming to United, there was a lot of emphasis on serving interior cities in China. Uh, what are the specific challenges to the region for United, do you think? Um, so, you know, we. The challenge is probably the biggest challenge is, right. is growth from in excess of demand. Um, and, you know, it's good for the country, but China in particular, uh, the Chinese carriers have grown pretty significantly uh, in the last five to six years. Uh, and in some cases, supply has outstripped demand, particularly in right. the secondary. But even in a place like a flight from L.A. to Singapore, uh, you know, the fares were $300 if you could make a connection somewhere in Asia, $300 round trip. And, you know, that's just not a level of pricing that you can right. have a, a market be successful. Now you've put a lot of uh, your strategy is on sort of uh, the sort of non-major hubs in the U.S. Do you plan any direct flights, let's say, beyond San Francisco and Newark to Asia, let's say out of Denver or... Yeah, so, well, we do serve, um, you know, out of Chicago, Denver, Houston, we uh, have at least some service. Uh, more service out of Dulles, um, but San Francisco will always be our primary gateway. One, the geography, you can funnel the entire United States through San Francisco, the geography just right. works. And San Francisco is, for most markets, the number one 
uh, O&D market uh, out of the United States. So having a hub there that can feed through the entire country is really going to be our principal focus. Now, I know you guys have Star Alliance partnerships, but have you ever considered a joint venture in the region, say with I don't know, Singapore Airlines or? Well, the challenge with, with joint ventures here in Asia, it, we'd love to, but the, uh, and we do have one with ANA, but the challenge with some of our other partners is they require open skies agreements uh, right. with the U.S. So particularly Air China is our other second largest partner here in Asia, uh, and the U.S. government won't allow joint ventures uh, unless there's right. an open sky regime between the two countries. Let's talk a little bit about open skies. So, yeah. uh, you know, the arguments have re rekindled over Air Italy. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about whether United's position has changed on this? or uh, It has not. Uh, it's, in <laughs> fact, strengthened. Um, look, we at United uh, are really proud of everything that we're doing, and we are happy to compete with any and every airline around the world on a fair and level playing field. But the Gulf carriers have gotten, you know, over $50 billion in identifiable right. subsidies, and we can't compete with, you know, routes, uh, right. can't compete with airlines that have that. And what... Um, Qatar is done by essentially using Air Italy as a proxy. They agreed to not do Fifth Freedom flying to the U.S., and then they're using Air Italy as a proxy to kind of thumb their nose at right. the agreement that they made and, um, and fly Fifth Freedom routes anyway. Um, we think it's just wrong. Right. Okay. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the 737 MAX, yep. which just not seem to be dying down any time yeah. soon in terms yeah. of being in the news cycle. Uh, you had a little bit of news a couple days ago that you're pushing back until yeah. August. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, sure. Uh, first, what I'd say on the MAX is uh, all of us in the aviation industry, I think, pride ourselves on the strength of the safety culture. Uh, and, you know, we carry, United alone carries 150 million customers a year. We carry billions of customers a year. Um, and a pretty incredible safety track record. Unfortunately, the two tragedies that happened uh, in the past year led, you know, identified a problem uh, with the MAX aircraft. The good news about that is, one, we're confident that Boeing and the regulators and all the airlines working together, uh, the airplane will be safe. It will be even safer um, when the fixes are implemented. And perhaps even more importantly in the long term is we in the airline industry uh, do a great job of taking any incidents um, and making the safety culture even stronger. And so the regulatory approval process, the process for changing airplanes, training, uh, everything about the process will be even stronger when this is done. Uh, but as we're going through this, of course, safety is our number one priority. Uh, and it's becoming clear that there's a decent chance the airplane wouldn't have been able to fly by July, early July, which was what we were originally planning. Um, and our second priority is taking care of customers. And so the best thing to do is to push it off to August and so that we don't have as many customers. And have you given any guidance on sort of the financial impact of that? Or? Uh, we really, we have not right. uh, at United. And, you know, like I said, our number one priority is safety, getting the plane back flying safely. Second is taking care of our customers. And we'll worry about the financial impact somewhere right. down the road. That said, we have said at United that uh, our guidance for the year, um, we're one of the few airlines that flies maxes that I think has been able to say this, uh, that we've been able to find other ways to overcome the financial impact and at least have been able to maintain our earnings guidance for the year. Is there any long-term impact for the FAA as, as it's viewed globally, given sort of the, you know, there's been some criticism they were slow to react, um, and any other sort of long-term impacts that this incident incidents well, would have? On well, first, I, I, hopefully, as I said before, the, the regulatory culture, not just with the FAA, uh, but with everyone around the world, will be strengthened when all of this is done. Um, 
we do have a process where we use data and science. Um, and I think if the FAA was here, they'd tell you that they waited for data and science to ground, and they will use data and science right. uh, to bring the airplane back um, up. Uh, you know, I, I read the criticism, right. um, and I think the brand of the FAA, you know, um, has certainly been been impacted like by this. But I think that the regulatory process at the FAA will be even stronger, is stronger today, and will be stronger at the end of this. Right. So just going to take a break for a public service announcement. If you want to ask Scott any questions, just a reminder, you can go to your mobile app uh, and go to the Q&A button there uh, and tee up some questions that we'll, <laughs> we'll hit Scott up with at the end. So, um, so you've earned a reputation as an exceptional operating executive. <laughs> well, thank with, you. Uh, with a keen, <laughs> keen eye on revenue, <laughs> revenue management. Uh, so you can look inside a cabinet and see revenues where maybe others can't. Uh, so how far can you push what's called so-called segmentation in terms of tearing off services, charging more for certain seats and so forth? And what's the anticipation in terms of blowback from, from your customers? So look, I think of segmentation as in its early innings and I'll flip it around instead of saying blowback. What we're doing is offering customers choice. Um, you know, when I came here to Singapore, I had a host of 20 different hotels, more than right. that, but 20 sort of different levels of hotel that we could choose to stay in and you could pick the product that you want and the price that goes along with it and segmentation really is about letting customers have choice yeah. Rafat talked about the democratization of air travel um, in the intro uh, and one of the greatest reasons that that has happened is because of low fares uh, but you can't fill an airplane with low fares the break-even load factor could be 200 um, percent but for customers that are willing to accept a pared down product, they get what they really want, which is a low price. Um, and for customers who want more than that, they can get what they really want. Trying to create one size fits all, which is what the airline industry was for decades, um, is inconsistent with what everything else in the world, and it's inconsistent with offering customers choice. And how, in, that, in deciding that, uh, how much is sort of customer dissatisfaction a, uh, a consideration? Well, look, I think it really is customer satisfaction. Right. Um, and so I would say it, okay. it the other way. Um, you know, if you had to charge every customer, if you went back to the days of regulation, you know, the fares, the prices that customers paid in the United States in inflation-adjusted terms were more than two times as high as they are today. Right. Um, now, look, everyone, you'd, I'd love to have a low fare and get all the amenities, but the right. economics simply don't work. Um, and it really is about giving people choice. So uh, I know you've talked probably to death about this, but uh, you know, social media moves uh, passenger, passenger incidents and customer dissatisfaction so quickly. What did you learn from the Dr. Dow incident in terms of social media? And what, what are you doing differently at United now? Yeah, you know, that was as, as uh, horrible as that was, it was a defining moment for United Airlines. Um, and we are a much better airline and we provide much better customer service today than we did then. Um, you know, some of the things it taught us is one, it matters how people feel about United Airlines. The court of public opinion actually matters much more today. We spent 
much of our history focused on taking care of our premium customers, the customers that fly business class from San Francisco to Singapore once a month um, and spend a lot of money. Uh, but the people that fly us once every five years, uh, in today's world, their opinion matters much more. Um, and we started something called the Core Four uh, with all of our employees, which is our Core Four priorities. Number one is safety. Number two is caring. Number three is reliability. And four is efficiency. But that, to an airline employee, calling caring number two uh, is a really big deal. So taking care of the customer, caring for the customer is more important than getting the airplane out on time. It's more important than saving money on efficiency. Um, and so we're using that uh, rubric as the way to really change United. And there's all kinds of incredible stuff that right. we'll run out of time if I talk about it all, but that's happening at United. Um, and much of it wouldn't have happened, it certainly wouldn't have happened as fast if we hadn't been required to respond to such a horrible incident. Right. So one constant since you've arrived has been your desire to renegotiate the deal with Chase over the loyalty <laughs> card. Uh, why can't you get that deal done? Well, um, look, uh, one thing that you find at United is there's a bunch of deals that needed to be renegotiated, <laughs> and we're doing them one at a time. Um, the most important one is, uh, is our credit card agreement. It's our biggest economic partnership. Um, and the reality is that the seven hubs that United have, we're in the best cities in the United States, um, the highest incomes. Uh, we have a great partner in Chase, um, probably, you know, I think from a consumer bank, probably say the number one bank uh, in the world. And the two of those things together create uh, an incredible opportunity. But it really is, it's a very big economic right. relationship for us, and it's a very big economic relationship for Chase. Um, the contract's about that thick. Uh, and so renegotiating uh, and finding a way for a win-win um, right. takes a little time. At <laughs> what point would you walk away? Well, we have a contract. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't walk away, I suppose, until the end of the contract. Right. Um, but we're not going to get to that. You know, we have a good partnership with Chase, and uh, I'm confident that we'll find a win-win um, that can grow the pie for both of us um, and get away from fighting about how we split up the pie and right. more about how do we grow the pie uh, and get customers using United Airlines and Chase instead of using our competitors. This is the contract portion of our talk today, so let's yeah. talk a little bit about Expedia. Okay, now. another <laughs> one we're trying to change. <laughs> do airlines really need OTAs anymore? Look, um, the world has changed, uh, and the reality is, particularly an airline like United, um, we can offer customers a better product um, right. online uh, than we can through, um, through an OTA. Uh, we do a much better job about telling the customers, here's what basic economy is, here's what standard, here's what premium plus is, um, and really explaining the choices that customers have. Um, and, you know, we have had a long-term uh, relationship with Expedia, and possibly we still will, right. um, but it is different today than it has been at any point in, in the history. Um, we don't, I think, need Expedia, um, but... Maybe there's a way that we can that we can work together, um, but it's a totally different ball game than it was. And when you were at American, you walked away from orbits. I did. Right. <laughs> so can Expedia expect the orbits treatment? Uh, <laughs> well, look, it, we've we've got to have a deal that works for United Airlines and for our customers, um, and that's the number one thing. If it works for our customers, we can we can find something that works, um, but we're not 
given we don't, we're not in the position where we right. need it today, um, you know, it gives us a lot more willingness um, to defend the customer. So more to come, I guess okay. we'll see. <laughs> Uh, your former colleague, Andrew Levy, and JetBlue's founder, David Nealman, are starting airlines uh, in this environment. Are, are these guys crazy? Well, first, um, I, I hear about about 50 airlines per year that are going to be started. <laughs> and since JetBlue, I haven't seen, or since Virgin uh, America, I haven't actually seen one. So let's wait and see till they actually start. Um, but look, it is tough to start an airline in the United States um, today. Low-cost carriers in the United States business models are predicated on offering lower fares and having big airlines not match the prices. Um, because if you're on a low-cost carrier, if you can get the same price on United Airlines or one of our large competitors um, that you get on a low-cost or an ultra-low-cost carrier, every knowledgeable consumer will choose United or one of the other big guys as opposed to flying an ultra low cost carrier. So it's a business model that they're not in control of. The business model is dependent on having com uh, competitors ignore them and not match their prices. Um, and at least speaking for United Airlines, we are not going to do that ever again. And We're going to compete aggressively. What's the future of the low cost model, do you think? Um, so it's, you know, it was, I think, uh, on one of the screens, you know, if I had to pick one thing that's driven change in the airline industry in the last 30 years, it's the growth of uh, low-cost carriers. Um, what it's meant is what it's, it's been clear that what customers really care about, for many customers, price is the number one thing that they care about. It's the reason, it's what caused segmentation. Had there not been growth of low-cost carriers, we would have never done all this with segmentation. Uh, but as it's become clear, as customers have voted with their wallet that we care about price, um, that has caused uh, the growth of segmentation and caused us to change. In a world of segmentation, however, I think that the low-cost carrier model gets harder to compete with an airline like United because, again, what the low-cost carriers always depended on was having a price advantage. And we can now compete on price for customers that care about price and compete on product and have a much better product for customers that care about product. So we're finally in the game. For 30 years, we weren't in the game on the price-sensitive customer, and we are now in the game on the price-sensitive customer. Let's take it up 30,000 feet. You're a, a, a senior executive at a major airline, and you get a glimpse of the global economy that maybe not a lot of us see. What are your concerns in terms of slowdowns and uh, the potential uh, fallback uh, from trade tensions with China? Um, look, as we lo if we look at the data around the world, uh, it is a lot different than if you watch CNBC in the morning. Right. And I love CNBC, but, um, but we don't see the slowdown um, in very many places. Um, even with the tensions between the United States and China, we have yet to see uh, a slowdown in demand. And we're you know, we have over 100 weekly flights to China, so uh, we're by a wide margin the largest U.S. carrier there. We don't see it yet. Um, if we had to look around the world and see any place that's weak, um, you know, Argentina is kind of the place mm. that we would focus on. Um, clearly, there's risk with something like Brexit coming up. Um, the irony of Brexit, though, at least for airlines, at least in the short term, is there's more demand to the U.K. than there is in normal times because so many people are flying back and forth across the Atlantic to prepare for Brexit or the right. potential of Brexit. So you got all these bankers and lawyers and consultants flying business class back and right. forth to get ready for Brexit. So in the short term, it actually has a 
positive for demand. We have a lot of business travelers here today. What's the state of business travel, do you think, in terms of growth? Or what are you seeing in, at United with business travel? Look, this is a connected world. You know, everything that Skift is about, um, defining the future of, tra of travel. Uh, it's about, it's a connected world. And it becomes more and more clear that doing business in person, um, that that personal connection is really important to uh, success. It's not just about traveling for fun, traveling for leisure. Um, the business travel, you need to get out, see your clients, um, see your partners, uh, and see them in person. And so business demand uh, is, is strong, um, and I expect it to continue to growing in the decades to come um, at faster than GDP. When there's a recession, it, of course, will slow down more. But if you plot the long-term trend over the next 20 years, I would guess that it'll grow faster than GDP. So one last question before we go to the audience, Scott. Um, you're clearly an ambitious guy who has not suffered fools gladly through your career. When will we see the CEO title in front of Scott <laughs> Look, I'm focused on, uh, you know, as I've been my whole career, trying to make the airline where I work the best. We have a goal um, to make United Airlines the, uh, the number one airline in the world. And by the way, we're going to get there. Um, Oscar has been uh, a wonderful, not just uh, CEO, uh, partner to me um, and mentor, um, and I'm a uh, better executive today than I would be had I not had the opportunity to work for Oscar the last uh, three years. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got a question from Anonymous. So we talked earlier about the low-cost uh, airline competitors. Which region is the toughest, do you think? For low-cost competitors? Yeah. Uh, well, for us, it's in the, it's in the U.S. Um, and I think this is probably true everywhere that the low-cost business model uh, works a lot better in short haul. It doesn't, and, and look, you can look all over the world, Europe, Asia. Um, and the reason is that low-cost carriers, business travels will fly on a short haul route for one or two hours, or, um, and they'll put up with small right. seat. Right. But they're not going to fly from Singapore back to the United States <laughs> in a cramped seat and coach. They're not going to fly across the Atlantic. They're going to fly in business class. And so half of the demand, and that's about half the revenue, half of the demand is simply not available to low-cost carriers and long haul. So uh, I think in every region, probably short haul is the toughest area of competition. Toughest area. Short haul, okay. Uh, we've got another anonymous question. How do you see biofuels impacting revenues and operational efficiency in aviation over the next five to 10 years? And what are the challenges you see with adoption and regulation? So, uh, look, this is a personal Good. passion of mine um, at United and something we're trying, and, uh, and we want to be a leader, um, a world leader in biofuels. We've made a commitment to reduce our emissions by uh, 50%. Um, that includes all of our growth. Uh, you, we can only get there with uh, biofuels. Uh, we have made a couple of startup investments uh, in two different uh, biofuel companies um, or alternative fuels uh, that uh, we're really proud of. Um, we were about, last year in the U.S., about 50%, over 50% of the biofuel that was actually used went out the back of a United Airlines jet. Um, and so we are really passionate about it. Um, Have you discussed what the dollar amount is in those investments? Or? Uh, I don't know if we've said it, but it's in the, you know, it's in the, it's in the tens of millions of dollars. Um, and, uh, and look, today, alternative fuels, the economics are still challenging, but... Um, not just for United Airlines, not just for aviation, but for the sake of, our, of the globe, uh, this is a problem that we're going to all have to solve. Great. Uh, what's United's take on uh, growing AI trends 
Um, we just lost the question. Uh, <laughs> let's go to another one. Vicus is saying, as airlines become more of a commodity, what are your plans to differentiate in this competitive environment? So uh, you got to think about how customers um, choose. Um, and roughly, let's just call it roughly half of revenue is customers that are choosing uh, not based on price. And, and about half the revenue price is probably number one um, for those customers. Um, that's when people say commodity, what they mean. Um, so we're making huge investments on the side of the business where customers uh, care about the product, huge investments in um, Polaris and Premium right. Plus and our lounges. Um, but even for the price sensitive customers, uh, if we're in the ballpark on price and because we've got segmentation, we can now be price competitive. Um, at that point, while it's number one, you know, flying on an airline that has live TV in, in the back of the airplane, which is something we just put on 200 and something of our airplanes, uh, having reliable Wi-Fi, um, having good customer service, having great reliability, flying the nonstop routes that they want to go. All of those are reasons that we can get customers to fly us. So we look at it as less of a commoditized game uh, where you just want to offer the lowest price, but maybe we need to be competitive on price, but how can we be competitive on price and then give a customer a reason to choose us because the product is superior? Prophet talked earlier about uh, travel as not a human right, but a human privilege. So how would you respond to that, that sort of concept? Um, so, I think it is, it's an honor to be able to travel. Uh, it's, it's part of, you know, we like to say connecting people and uniting the world. Um, you know, a lot of the headlines you read um, every day, uh, no matter what your view on those things is, the more we can bridge differences, the more we can understand each other around the world, and travel is key to that, um, the more we can make the world a better place. Great, that's a great way to end it. Scott, thank you so much for your time Thank today. you, Tom. Appreciate it. Thank you.